Moncrief on News Talk. It is time now for Around the World, and Jonathan de Burke Butler joins me as always for this. Jonathan, how are you today? Tom, how are you getting on? You well? Are you getting sentimental about snow listening to this conversation? Yeah, I'm getting sentimental about snow when I was in school. Uh, I was all for snow days, but since having children myself, I am not an advocate of uh, of snow days, I have to say. So uh, all for education, uh, say I. Right, you don't to grab that magic moment to go out there and make little memories well, with them well, the Generally snow. what happens is they'll go out for about 10 minutes and they come in and play, play the PS4. So, I mean, it's not exactly a, a magic moment, to be, to be right. honest. Yeah, you're, you're, you're certainly letting the, the air out of that balloon. <laughs> Johnson. Um, right, so our first story takes us to uh, Mali, where yes. um, it's kind of a complicated uh, situation because they did have a coup, didn't they? And they were, I don't know, they were, were they coming to terms with it and, and trying to work their way around it? What's going on? It, that's not a bad description of it. Yeah, Mali, somewhere where they don't really have any prospect of snow days at all, I would imagine. Um they, they've had several military coups uh, down the years uh, since their independence in 1960. Um, but for a long time there, they were actually doing okay, at least in terms of democracy and, and elections and that kind of things. Now, that depends on how you measure it, to be honest with you. But um, back in 2020, there was a military coup uh, which got rid of the president, Ibrahim uh, Kieta. Okay, that happened in the summer of 2020, shortly after elections, which were in themselves pretty chaotic. I remember we actually covered a story on it last year, and and the day before, or a couple of days before the elections, the opposition leader was actually kidnapped, and he kind of disappeared for about a week. Uh, nobody knew where he was, and he, he turned up safe and sound later. But uh, you know, it doesn't it doesn't uh, really give a good indicator as to. Um, how well the election system works there, but there was there was a lot of protests, uh, particularly in the capital, around corruption and the economy and how the the government were dealing with with COVID, and the rel- the the couple of different insurgencies that have been ongoing uh, and continue to to happen, um, particularly in the northern part of the country. So there's there's a lot going on. So uh, it meant that uh, there was a military coup in August. Uh, President Ibrahim Kieta uh, was kicked out. Uh, he ended up going to Saudi Arabia ostensibly because he had to get medical treatment. But I think the military just let him go. And, and I, I suspect he won't be coming back anytime soon. And they've been trying to, I suppose, put a veneer of, of democracy over proceedings since then. Right. So the leader of the coup, a man by the name of uh, Colonel Asimi Goyeta, um, he installed himself as the vice president uh, shortly after the coup, and he, he he basically appointed a president, and that president appointed a prime minister. Okay, but they recently released their uh, the makeup of their new cabinet, and Colonel Goeta was not happy with that cabinet, so he arrested the prime minister and the president, sent them to prison, and. Uh, I imagine they were incentivized to resign mm. from their posts, which they have done. And now the, the leader of the coup, uh, Colonel Goeta, has has installed himself as president of the country. Um, so interesting times in what is and has been for a number of years a pretty chaotic um, country. Uh, you know, the South, you could have argued for a long time, was was relatively untouched by these insurgencies. But gradually, you know, the, the the problems with those insurgencies have been creeping from the north down to the south, and and uh, 
have been influencing politics in the country quite clearly. Okay, I don't think we're going to see the back of him anytime soon. Uh, no, I mean, it. yeah, I mean, he has, like all of these coup leaders, they say, oh, well, look, there'll be a transition period of, of 18 months and then we'll go ahead with holding elections in 2022. But, you know, we've heard that before in a lot of places. Now, the only thing about it is international pressure and neighbouring countries uh, might, you know, Put the heat on him a little bit, and France is very heavily involved in Mali. Okay, as still are is, the isn't it? Yeah. it is very heavily involved still, Tom. Yeah, and given that uh, they they still have a presence in the country, although it's not as significant as it was from what I remember, they might be able to to put pressure on um, on him. That's if they want to. To be honest with you, yeah, you'd never know. He I mean, may, they, he they might have encouraged. Yeah, yeah. Um, let me see, the, I'll give you a few facts. The eighth largest country in Africa, the third largest producer of gold in Africa, and you were right, absolutely no snow, no snow whatsoever. Um, to Nigeria, where um, the boat accidents, not uncommon on Nigerian waterways, but this has been an absolutely dreadful one. Yeah, this is a, a desperate story, and it follows, um, as you said, another accident which, which happened earlier this month in which 30 people drowned um in 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 a storm i believe uh that the, the the boat actually snapped in two and 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 30 people drowned this one looks like there might be more people and um, i think at the moment 76 bodies have been found so far 22 people were rescued alive um but it's estimated that there might be about 130 to 140 people uh, who are feared drowned after this particular uh, accident so it happened on Wednesday, when this boat was ferrying about 180 people to a market um, in the state of Kebi in the northwest of the country. Now, just to give you a bit of context, this <clears throat> state, which would be considered a relatively small state in Nigeria, is about the size of the Netherlands. And it's a very busy place uh, in terms of farming. I think it's um, a bit of a bread, what do they call them, a bread bowl uh, in, in terms of this kind of thing for production of wheat and of rice, yeah. it should be said as well. So there's a lot of uh, back and forth on the on the the Niger River, and um, as you said, uh, this this is a pretty tragic uh, occurrence. The boat was only supposed to be carrying 80 people, so the fact that it was carrying 180 passengers wow. uh, is probably not a good uh, uh, good good uh, indictment of their health and safety procedures there. Um, but a very sad outcome, as you as you as right. you said. and also loaded with bags of sand from a gold mine. Um, as well. Um, your next story concerns uh, Lesotho, which is an interesting country. It's it's um, one of only three independent states completely contained within another state. It's contained within South Africa. And I'll let listeners just mull over what the other two are as you tell us about events in that country. Yeah, um, it, it is a very interesting place um, and an awful lot of its economy is based around um, the rag trade and um, the uh, production of clothes. And um, in this particular case, <coughs> excuse my uh, coughing, uh, a woman has died after being shot during violent clashes between uh, factory workers and police in the country, right? So this is because trade unions are demanding a 20% salary increase for, the, for the lowest paid employees in, in the country, right? So they already earn, I mean, something ridiculous like 115 euros a month um so employers are saying they can only pay about five percent 
right. uh, because of the impact of COVID nineteen, and and you know because their you know their costs of, of getting materials and 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 demand from the United States, for example, has dropped. Um, but the trade unions and the workers who are out protesting and are out looking for these increases are demanding much more than that, and and probably rightfully so. So there was, um, and what what went on exactly? They they were an interme- international labour organisation had mediated, and that was really a part of what caused uh, a lot of the the trouble here, wasn't it? I'm not under, I'm not one hundred percent sure as to why. So this is the international labour organisation that the the government said that they were going to bring in to mediate this standoff because the police and the army had got involved. That organization's been around since 1919, and I can't see, now I didn't do an an in-depth investigation into it, but I can't see any reason as to why they wouldn't be okay with them coming in. Um, Maybe they felt that, you know, they wouldn't get anything near the increase that they they were looking for. Now, the, the prime minister has basically said that he's going to publish a new salary on the 16th of June. And he's encouraged the strikers to go back to work in the meantime. But uh, the unions are saying that, you know, the workers are going to stay at home until they have a concrete promise that they get the salary increase. Um, So at the moment, there's still a standoff, definitely. Very good. And uh, 95% of those workers are women, I see here. The two other uh, independent states that are completely contained within another state are the Vatican City and San Marino, for those of you who are wondering about that. Um, I think we nearly got to talk about Chile the last time I was on with you. And they're in, in the throes of trying to uh, draft a new constitution. At the moment, they have a constitution that was drafted by Pinochet, don't they? Which is basically quite right-wing and, and pro-business. And this has been seen as a, a, a democratic moment to try and redraft that. But the government's had a setback. Yeah, the government's had a setback, which, um, you know, they're, they're, would be on the centre-right of the, of the political spectrum. This is Sebastian Piñera and his government. And um, they... Last week, uh, a, a uh, uh, I suppose, what would you call them? 155 candidates were put were, were elected, okay, to draft uh, and rewrite a constitution. Right, they're going to have 12 months to do it, and these came from right across the spectrum of of uh, citizens. Right, so there was models, footballers, all sorts of different things. About 1,200 people put themselves forward. So it wasn't all just politicians, okay? And the um, Chile, the ruling party, Chile Vamos, uh, fully expected that they would come back with at least a third of the seats in the, in the body. Um, and, and the reason that's significant is because you'd need just over a third to basically block any changes as a two-thirds majority to, you know, to, to bring forward change. But they got nowhere near it. They only got about a fifth of the um, numbers that they needed, right? And so you have a, a kind of a coalition now who have four fifths of the seat, who were independents, or on the centre left, or on the far left of the coalition. So <clears throat> the worry from Pinera's point of view, I'm not saying from everybody's point of view, most certainly, but from Pinera's point of view, is that they'll go for a very heavily left-leaning type of constitution that he says risks. You know the stability of the country, and you know the 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 view in some international um, spheres that it is a, a very stable country with with a stable economy and good for investment and and so on. So right. big change there. I think more worryingly for for him 
is the fact that uh, it doesn't bode well for elections that are going to take place later on in the year in November. I think they're having presidential elections and um, uh, elections around Congress. So not good for him uh, going forward, okay. but uh, certainly good for the for, for left-leaning parties in that part of the world. Yeah. The 155 citizens who rewrite the Constitution, um, they haven't been chosen yet, have they? Or, or is that is that what this election is, is part of to choose? That that's they have been chosen, and um, so that's what that particular election was okay. all about. So back last year, they first of all voted to change the constitution, and then they said, "Okay, we'll pick the candidates." Yeah, I'm and just, so that's I'm amazed. They, that's they are now. Right, I'm looking down at TV hosts and fashion models. We don't know how many of them actually made it to the 155 um, citizens who might, we would hope that people might be slightly more uh, qualified to the ones who did uh, manage to make it in there. Um, on to Peru, so, and a, a terrorist group whose name was very, very famous, but which we haven't heard much of um, in the last two decades or so. The Shining Path rebel group, they were very famous and, and for all the wrong reasons. And back in the news, and once again back in the news for all the wrong reasons yeah shining path um uh or a splinter group thereof uh were responsible for for the deaths of at least 14 people last week now also in peru there are elections coming up in um about two weeks time involving keiko fujimori she's the daughter of the former president alberto fujimori um sworn enemy of the Shining Path, and uh, the man many would see as being responsible for getting rid of them in the early 1990s. Now, <clears throat> this splinter group um, went into this village called San Miguel del Ene, and it's not clear why they uh, did what they did in this particular town, or village, I should say, but uh, certainly they left a really uh, a gruesome message. As I said, 14 people dead, including two children, and they left leaflets <laughs> behind basically telling everybody that they should boycott the upcoming presidential elections and that anybody who voted for Keiko Fujimori would be considered a traitor and presumably would have the same treatment uh, meted out to them as well. Right. Um, I know at the time they were the, the uh, shining light, shining path guys, were, they were seen as a vanguard of communism um, when the kind of capitalism versus communism debate was much more active than it is today. And a very interesting thing about them was they were 50% female, which is a really, really unusual thing. But the feeling was they were gone. So is this something they will be worrying about or is this just, you know, a message, an act of desperation or something like that? So there's two things on that. First of all, you're right in what you say, that they were pretty much gone. But where they operate now in the middle of Peru would be cocaine country as well. So the government are trying to pay them, and I'd say they wouldn't be too far wrong in many respects, as being in cahoots with drug dealers, okay? And so this is their real motive. And what they're trying to okay. do is basically, yeah, and what they're, now what they would say themselves is that they're, Others would say that they're probably trying to keep peasants on side, but I think going into a village and shooting people is not the yeah. way to do it. There is some speculation, and this is based on something that happened earlier in, when was it, March of 2021, I think, when four yeah. members of a family were shot for being uh, police informers. According to Shining Path, they were police informers. So there might be an okay. element of that going on here as well. But again, it's like all of these things. It's, 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 um, it's, it's a lot of politics and, you know, um, but these particular guys are really quite gruesome and they always have been 
to tell you the Always truth. I mean, they've been around since yeah. the late 60s and they have a ferocious reputation. They certainly do. Um, that is The Shining Path Revels, uh, killing 14 people in Peru. Your next story is one that I think will chime uh, with a lot of people. It's it's this um, mass grave containing the remains of 215 indigenous children on the grounds of a former residential school in the interior of uh, southern British Columbia, uh, which is very remote, the far side of Canada, a long way away from um from us um but it's a grim story yeah it's not wonderful um echoes of of some stories from this part of the world sean uh, or tom sorry my apologies i have, I have it there um yeah echoes of stories from this part of the world um this relates to um the, what's called the Kamloops indian residential school which was established in 1890 right so there's a roman catholic uh church ran it it was closed in 1978. Um, horrible place, okay? <coughs> they uh, were... Um, go on. They were, they were, they, they was, it was part of this problem with the... Well, they might call it a problem, but essentially uh, local Indian tribes called Kamloop Indians were seen as... Uh, well, they were trying to forcibly assimilate indigenous children, so they were removing... This is going back a long time now. Removing them from their homes and their communities, forbidding them from speaking their native languages or performing cultural practices, uh, and putting them in these homes where the conditions and what happened to them was famously absolutely awful, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, this was just like in Australia when they took the Aboriginal kids away and tried to um, basically, assim you know, assimilate them forcibly into into you know, I suppose Western culture, if you like. But this was, you know, there's about 150,000 children attended these schools. They reckon <clears throat> that from what they know, there's about 3,000 of them, over 3,000 of them died. And in this particular case, they found the remains of 215 indigenous children that were discovered on this grounds uh, or on the grounds of, of, of this school in, in British Columbia. So since that discovery, there has been calls for further investigation, as you can imagine, because there was lots of these schools dotted around the country. And it's just a question of going to those places, I assume, and, and finding uh, the remains and finding more evidence um, uh, of, of, those, of those schools. I mean, they, they were pretty horrific. I mean, there was, there's documentation since that we have, which mentions students being exposed to outbreaks of measles, TB, and flu, and, and absolutely no um, sort of sense of properly isolating um, children and that kind of thing and just effectively letting them die. Um, horrendous right. stuff, really. And not, and not something we hear that much about, really, in terms of Canada. We hear a lot no. about it in Australia and that kind of thing, but it is yeah. something that's been, that's been spoken about more in the last, uh, I'd say, 10 years. There was a Truth and Reconciliation Commission in 2015, um, which did a lot of work. Um, and the results from that commission, I suppose, are being, are being actioned on now right. in, in more recent years. Right. They say the estimates of, of possibly upwards of 3,000 residential school gets, uh, deaths during that period. Jonathan, listen, thank you very much for joining us. And a I pleasure my, as always. I my throaty, my, the frog in my throat. I can't seem to get rid of it. <laughs> yeah, you seem to be suffering a little bit. Get a, a good glass of water for yourself there and look after yourself. Jonathan, thanks very much indeed. Um, coming up after the break, a story of survival. We'll be take, speaking with the documentary maker, Melissa Fung, whose film tells the story of the Boko Haram abductees after this. Moncrief on News Talk.